Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. As pollution levels increase around the globe, whether from vehicle traffic, wildfires, ozone, industrial, or other sources, it's time to ask the question. Should we modify how, where, and when we train based on our potential exposure to pollutants? Furthermore, are there certain pollutants that are worse than others? And finally, can we, and if so, should we, actually try to quote-unquote adapt to certain pollutants? We're joined today by a leading expert in the field of environmental pollution and its effects on exercise performance and health, Dr. Michael Cole from the University of British Columbia. With his help, we'll address the different risks associated with pollution exposure and how those effects change based on the concentration and duration of our exposure, as well as how we breathe. Finally, Dr. Cole, as well as environmental physiologist Dr. Stephen Chung and pro cyclist Shana Palace, share their recommendations for training in a polluted world. Ultimately, exercise is good, pollution is bad, and there are things we can do to lessen the impact based on the conditions that day. Let's make you fast. Longtime listeners know that we often discuss training data on Fast Talk. So we're excited to announce a new pathway at Fast Talk Labs, the Basic Performance Data Analysis Pathway. Pathways are like a masterclass on endurance sports topics. In our new pathway on basic data analysis, we tap experts like Tim Cusick, Dirk Friel, my co-host Trevor Connor, our head coach Ryan Kohler, coach Julie Young, and sports scientist Dr. Steven Seiler to explore ways that athletes can cut through the noise and focus on the performance numbers that matter most. To know your data is to know yourself. Follow our new pathways at fasttalklabs.com pathways. Well, welcome to Fast Talk, Dr. Cole. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. I know uh, you have come well recommended from Dr. Stephen Chung, who uh, our listeners will know quite well. So we're looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you both. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm a fan of the program, so it's uh, it's an honor. So, so today's episode is really taking a look at pollution from a, both a health and performance perspective, and we'll get there. Um, I'm I'm curious to know if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about how how does one end up focusing on this area? You have both an MD and a PhD, I believe. How did you land in this realm? A couple of factors. So uh, you're right. My job is a nice mix. I do I practice clinical sports medicine, and then I do exercise environmental physiology research on the side. And so I kind of came into the job. The research job is an environmental physiologist like Stephen Chung. Dr. Chung does a lot of uh, temperature-related stuff. And uh, my background was more in altitude and sort of the interaction between uh, high altitude and exercise, more from a health point of view than a performance point of view. I'm not sure ex- exactly how I uh, got involved in the pollution side of things. I think it was just an area of interest. It's a bit of when you're living in, in a place like Vancouver at sea level, it's not the optimal place to study high altitude, whereas uh, right. air pollution aff- affects us all in varying ways. And so, you know, I've always been fascinated by you know, the human response to exercise. The pollution thing is a, is a really uh, complicated area, as is exercise. And I think uh, the media messaging at the time is, is very confusing for 
consumers and for clinicians too, uh, you know, because we know that we want to be exercising and doing it more for a variety of reasons. And we, we should know that air pollution is bad for us for a variety of reasons, but how they interact um, uh, is, is really uh, at the time and, and still is poorly understood and is an area that we really need to, like how do you balance um, the good effects of exercise with the, the bad effects of air pollution? And I guess that's sort of something that really interested us, especially for things like the active commuter. People that walk or run or cycle to work uh, in the inner city, we wanted to be able to come up with some guidance for them. Yeah, and I think that is a major point uh, that we'll touch upon throughout this episode is the balance between, you know, these two ends of the spectrum, pollution being bad, exercise being good, where how do you make judgments on what amount of exercise to do if air pollution is high or low or somewhere in between and, and so on and so forth. And I think we'll touch upon that throughout. I wonder if we should start with this really, it might seem pretty simple, but I, I think this is where it actually begins to be complex is what is pollution? How, how many types of pollution are we talking about here? And what are the different effects? Yeah, yeah. So that that's a great place to start, Chris, in that pollution is very complicated. It's really a mix of gases and particles. And the gases can be things like uh, ground level ozone or carbon monoxide. And then the particles can be things like pollen or dust from a road or soot from wildfires, which uh, uh, affects uh, you guys in Colorado and certainly affects us up here in British Columbia, or or uh, particles of uh, even heavy metals or products of internal combustion. And so every the pollution is always changing during the day, during the season, and during uh, in different locations. And so I like to think of it as a as a bit of a, a recipe in every every place and season and time of day, you're having a different recipe, certain amounts of gases versus certain amounts of particles. So for example, you know, wildfire season, that's, that's really heavy in, in particles, things like soot from the, from the fire. Whereas uh, we have the Olympics coming up uh, in Tokyo, maybe. Tokyo is unique in that they have particularly high levels of ozone, which has different effects from the wildfire. And so we can't use our solutions for riding around Boulder that we'd use uh, for Tokyo, and we have to treat them differently. Yeah, that was something I really got out of the your presentation that Chris and I watched, and, and also after Dr. Chung's book, which is we tend to think of pollution as this big monolith, but it, it's not. And it actually makes researching it very hard because one study might look at one particular mix, uh, another study, so you, you call it a recipe, which I kind of like, Another study might look at a different recipe, and as you said, how you handle it, the effects it has on you, and, and, and what you should do in terms of your training are going to be very different depending on that recipe. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And so uh, when we look at the research, there's, there's uh, pros and cons, advantages and disadvantages of every single study. And so we have uh, colleagues we work closely with in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And they have a ready source of high quality air pollution right next to their lab. It's one of the busiest roads in uh, in Sao Paulo. I like that. 
high quality source of air pollution. Yeah. <laughs> That's a funny way of putting it. Yeah. Well, it truly is the perfect recipe of Sao Paulo air pollution. They just pump it in from the, the highway. Uh, whereas in here in Vancouver, we, we kind of have really good air quality 48 to 50 weeks of the year. And then wildfire season shows up and then we have a really bad air quality. And so we have to, we have to create or import our air pollution. Uh, and so we use sort of different models and often we use a bit, maybe you could say a less, less realistic air pollution, but perhaps more controlled. So when we, when we're doing our, our studies with diesel exhaust, we set it so that we get uh, a certain type of particle that, that is called PM 2.5 because it's a certain size of the particle. And we want 300 micrograms per cubic meter every time we collect data. So every participant has the same experience and that's good. But the whole thing is, well, diesel exhaust is representative of diesel, but we don't have that much ozone in there and not as much oxides of nitrogen. And so, so that's why we uh, have to look at everybody's different model of, of research and take a little piece of it, everything to sort of try and understand this puzzle. So I remember you in your, your presentation, you, you talked particularly about two, ozone and carbon dioxide, which appear to have impacts on pulmonary function, particularly uh, carbon dioxide, because it has a much higher uh, affinity for binding to hemoglobin than oxygen. So it basically... Uh, if you're you're breathing a lot of carbon monoxide and oxygen, it's going to affect your ability to deliver oxygen to the the working cells. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you're right, Trevor, about sort of putting ozone and carbon monoxide a bit separate because they're separate for a few reasons. But probably one of them is we understand their effects on the body, and carbon monoxide, exactly for the reason you say, has this high affinity for hemoglobin. It outcompetes with the oxygen, and so it's it actually has very a very clear mechanism of a detrimental effect on performance. Um, and actually, it's it's interesting, and maybe you've talked about this on previous episodes. There there is a sort of a method of using carbon monoxide uh, as a performance enhancer because you can basically it's almost like altitude in a bottle in that you can make the blood hypoxemic so low oxygen in the blood temporarily to stimulate the human sort of physiological adaptation or acclimatization to the low oxygen and then when it's time to do a hard workout you can have them in a low carbon monoxide situation so that you have a lot of oxygen carrying capacity of blood and you can work really hard so it's almost almost like that live high, train low concept. So we understand the carbon monoxide really quite well, and, and the, the effects are, especially on performance, are, are quite clear. Ozone is, is different in that it's, we call it a secondary pollutant, in that ozone typically doesn't come out of the back of cars or out of smokestacks, but it's, it's created later on. It's a secondary pollutant in that you combine uh, hydrocarbons oxides of nitrogen and ultraviolet light from the sun, and that creates ozone. So um, on a high heat, high sun day, late in the day, ozone levels typically um, are higher. And uh, ozone itself seems to be a bit of an irritant to the lung. So other than carbon monoxide, I'd say ozone is the one that has the clearest effects, both in terms of health 
and uh, performance as well. There's also, uh, I don't know if you want to get into it now, but there's also some evidence that we can adapt to ozone. This is something that uh, they really figured out in actually in the 80s, and then um, uh, they started to work on it, and then people stopped researching ozone because, you know, with especially with California's pollution regulations and stuff, ozone became less of a factor uh, compared to how it was in, say, the 70s. But uh, people uh, who uh, are exposed to ozone, they have a reduction in their lung function. But if you keep that up um, and expose them to ozone for, say, four or five days in a row, they they seem to uh, become less responsive or more protected against the ozone, and their their lung function improves. And there was a, uh, a really neat modeling study where they looked at uh, uh, track and field meet in a high ozone location, and they looked at where everyone came from. Did they come from a high ozone community or a low ozone community? And the people from the high ozone community who were presumably adapted to ozone at the track meet, they performed better than the people who were not exposed routinely to ozone. So that, that's one thing that seems to make ozone quite uh, different is uh, compared to the other pollutants, we may actually be able to adapt to it. And so that's uh, it's something to think about, especially uh, coming up with, with the Olympics happened this summer, um, where ozone levels are higher than... Uh, uh, back home for a lot of the athletes, one of the things that uh, we uh, we published an editorial on this is that maybe people may want to actually sort of pay attention to the amount of ozone they're experiencing in the days up to competition. And if if uh, typically for a lot, especially for endurance sports, they're going to be doing heat and humidity acclimation prior to the Olympic Games anyway, because uh, Tokyo is a very hot, humid environment for endurance athletes so they may get a sort of a combined heat humidity and ozone adaptation prior to the game so that's something that's quite unique with ozone and we just got funded for a study we're going to actually look at be looking at that a lot in the next year or two the, the adaptation effect to it Shana Paulus, a pro on Team 2024 has had to deal with all types of pollution living in an urban environment like Los Angeles she uses things like Zwift to reduce her exposure when exercising. Let's hear her insights on how she's dealt with training and pollution for both herself and for the athletes that she coaches. Definitely not ideal um, to be an athlete, especially a professional athlete living and training in a particularly polluted area. For me personally, I've lived in a couple different places where pollution can be a pretty big issue. Um, you know, living in the Los Angeles area, there's certain parts of LA that are definitely polluted, I would say. So especially like with the amount of traffic and cars going through, I would say pollution can definitely be an issue in bigger cities like LA. So I lived in LA for five years. I went to school at UCLA and thankfully a lot of my training actually was out on the PCH, like along the coast, but whenever I would kind of go more inland, there were definitely days that were worse than others with the pollution, especially if you kind of go more inland um, in the LA area. So on those particularly more polluted days, or if I have days where I am riding more inland and it does tend to be more 
you know, smoggy with traffic and everything in the big city area. Um, I would always just make sure I communicate with my coach and make sure that we're, we're modifying or adjusting. Um, and then also if I have my, with my own athletes, if they live in certain areas where it, it tends to be more polluted than other areas, or if it's just a particularly more polluted day than others, then communication is key. And then from there, just adjusting, modifying training so that either A, you're spending as little time as possible outside training in that pollution, and then just kind of, you know, riding inside, whether it's on Swift, your trainer, that's what I've personally done in the past. And that's what I've told a lot of my athletes too, as well, um, on those polluted days. So the modifications you'd make are more in terms of time. How about intensity? Would you, would you recommend that they don't do anything intense or would you prefer that they do intense because it's shorter and, and get out of the bad air as quickly as possible? If they had like super heavy, intense intervals for that particularly for that particular day, and it was a, a very particularly smoggy day, then I would just honestly have them stay inside right on Swift. Um, ideally, if not on Swift, then, you know, just on the trainer. I mean, it would also just depend on exactly the, the smog levels, those pollution levels. So it would just really just depend on that, whether or not I would say, oh, like you, you definitely have to ride inside today versus, oh, you can probably just get away with, you know, going outside, doing like some steady, easy riding. But yeah, it really would just all depend on the actual levels. You know, the times that I'm sure you've had to ride in uh, bad air quality from time uh, to time, how would you say it, it affects you, your performance? I'm the kind of person that I'm very, I would say I'm pretty sensitive to those kinds of things, especially with like my allergies. And I feel like it just kind of it's a big snowball effect for me when I go out personally and train when it's smoggy out. Um, so because of the fact that I have my trainer, I'm swift. Um, it's just, it's so easy for me to just stay inside and still be able to get good quality training in. If on a particular day where I didn't have the option of my having my trainer and my swift handy and I had no choice, but to go outside, then um, honestly, it would just depend on how smoggy it is. And if it's too bad, then I would just not train at all. Um, but if it's not too terribly bad, I would honestly just cut it short, keep it easy, not be outside as much. So, yeah. The question I have for you, since you basically have this dis different recipe everywhere uh, that can really change from uh, over the course of the day, at this point, everybody who's got a weather app on their phone, it gives an air quality assessment. Is that useful? Is there a value in that when, when you can get such different mixes of these pollutants? I think that's it's a really important point because when we, we talk about the health effects a little bit later on, uh, sometimes people may get the impression that the air pollution isn't actually so bad on, for our health when we get to the research. But we it's no matter no matter what we need to reduce our air pollution exposure during rest and during exercise and training as much as possible because air pollution uh, contributes to lung disease heart disease hospitalizations uh, mortality um, it's bad for us and so paying attention to air pollution uh, levels uh, is really important and these these apps there's 
the EPA has an app, the Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S. Uh, there's a, a French one that I like. It has a really nice forecast. It's called Plume, which is sort of a pun. It means like feather, but also like a plume of smoke because it gives you a forecast. So say you, you look at it at 8 a.m., you can actually see what time of day they expect the pollution to uh, be at its lowest level. And we always recommend um, exercisers and cyclists to uh, try to separate themselves from air pollution in terms of time or uh, distance. And so um, there will be a lot of variation even locally in terms of air pollution levels. And so here in Vancouver, we're right on the ocean. And so we have uh, the wind uh, coming off the ocean, often certain times of day, bringing fresher air. We're also surrounded by mountains that can trap, uh, trap in smoke and smog. And so there'll be uh, significant variations even within uh, uh, tens of kilometers or, or miles. And so uh, for cyclists uh, in Vancouver, there's, uh, if you live right in the city, there's two areas to go. You either go north into where the mountains are, or you go south, uh, which is more kind of flat, but there's good gravel riding there and some some good sort of farmland riding. And in a in a in a day in wildfire season, there's going to be a big difference between going into the mountains and the rural area. And these apps uh, are really effective at, at showing you that difference. Uh, that's one of the things I would recommend is if you are, say, planning a long ride, uh, have a look see what it's like in the various regions you would want to ride choose the lower lower pollution region and if you can if you have that flexibility choose a time of day uh, which is better so often early in the mornings are best ozone levels peak sort of late in the afternoon particle levels peak a little bit later uh, in places like uh, colorado and bc where wildfire is an issue it, it might be more constant but you'll still find dips uh, depending on how the weather is affecting it. Uh, so uh, the apps that are available, uh, I think, are really good tools uh, for cyclists just to minimize that air pollution exposure. So what should you be looking for in the app? I, I know some of them, they all have different scoring systems. Some of them are color-coded. Are you looking at absolute levels, or should, is that color-coding a good guide? I do like the color-coding in that each jurisdiction has has their own grading system. So uh, the United States one is the AQI, whereas in Canada we use the AQHI, and then there's a there's a CAQI in Europe, and uh, that Plume group they have their own, and so uh, and they're all derived slightly differently. Uh, so I find it's a bit confusing for the end user to sort of differentiate between the two. But the thing that seems that's really fortunate is that all the scales uh, just about have the same color coding. Whereas uh, in a low pollution or low pollution health effect environment, it's going to be green. And then it progresses through sort of amber, orange to red. And then it goes into sort of violet and burgundy when it's sort of off the charts. And so when you're uh, planning a ride or a, an exercise event, ideally you're going to do it in a time and a place where it's more in the green and yellow area and less the sort of orange, red, uh, burgundy uh, and uh, and so I think that's helpful. The individual numbers would be different. So here we have basically a scale of 
uh, in Canada, one to 10 and then 10 plus, whereas uh, the US scale is sort of centered around 100, whereas 100 is sort of based on the sort of public health guidelines. So the numbers are really quite different, but the colors are the same. You know, a yellow uh, in the US has pretty well the same interpretation as a yellow here. And so uh, I, think, uh, I think going by color is just a lot more convenient. The question I really wanted to hit you with, because I, I was a little surprised by this, but it makes more sense when you talk about this changing recipe of, of the pollutants. It seems like, well, there is a, a fair amount of research that's been done. It's still pretty inconclusive. So what would you say is the, the status of the research uh, on pollution and exercise? Yeah, you're right. I think the best way to think of it is, is to have two major divisions. And Chris brought this up earlier. There's there's the health effects, and then there's the performance effects. And I mean sort of exercise performance. So for cyclists, you know, wattage, heart rate kind of performance, and velocity, obviously, performance. And you you want to study them differently, and they have different different meanings. And then the way we group the pollutants, I think, is, uh, is important. I think we've sort of spent a good amount of time talking about carbon monoxide and ozone. Um, the rest of the pollutants like the particulates and the oxides of nitrogen, is it's kind of convenient uh, to, to lump them together into sort of a, a combustion-related or traffic-related air pollutants. So it's uh, uh, because, uh, A, they, they typically were exposed to them typically at the same time. So cyclists, you're riding uh, in traffic or, or near traffic, and you're going to be exposed to a lot of that traffic-related air pollution. The way people look at that are things like diesel exhaust or like the Brazilians look at just direct uh, traffic. And when we look at those pollutants from a, a health point of view, we can see that long-term air pollution is bad for us. We look at long-term studies that, that look at uh, exercise patterns over a decade or more and combine it with air pollution data, the epidemiological studies, which are those type of studies, show that, yes, air pollution is bad for our health, but the physical activity benefits on our health are, are clear, and they still persist, persist uh, in the majority of studies when, the, when people are exposed to air pollution. So from a health point of view, uh, we take that to mean avoid your exposure to air pollution as much as you can, but not so much that you become sedentary uh, because uh, all your listeners will have a good understanding about how, how uh, being sedentary is really bad for our health. So sort of in the long-term uh, health uh, point of view, it, it's quite clear that we need to stay physically active. In the short-term health effects of air pollution, they're surprisingly hard to, to demonstrate with the internal combustion traffic-related air pollution uh, in that exercise is such a, a complex phenomenon and, and intense exercise like your listeners will, will uh, uh, choose to partake in uh, is such a large stimulus on the body that when we do studies of intense exercise in very high pollution conditions, can't really discern negative acute health effects uh, during the exercise or immediately after. And, and when we do the studies uh, in our lab, we're using 
quite high levels of air pollution that would, uh, from a color point of view, be in the red zone, not sort of green and yellow. And, and uh, we're finding that we don't see significant performance effects and we don't see a significant acute health effects during exercise. The long term, it seems clear we need to stay active. We need to minimize our air pollution exposure long term. In the short term, we can't see big significant effects of uh, exercise almost synergizing with high levels of air pollution over the short term. And th this is something that I, I think was uh, unexpected and surprising, but we've just completed a review where we, we looked at 14,000 studies and uh, sort of called them down to the important ones. And the, the consensus still holds up that there, there's, there aren't clear effects of acute exercise making air pollution effects worse. And, you know, Chris started off by saying, you know, air pollution is bad, exercise is good. And that holds up. Air pollution is bad and we need to avoid it. But uh, the sort of acute exercise in air pollution doesn't seem to sort of synergize and make it worse. Which is interesting. So uh, I like the way you, as I remember you did in your presentation, you, you put up on a slide, pollution bad, but it was lowercase bad, exercise good with uppercase good to kind of imply, yeah, you want to avoid pollution, but exercise is really good for you. So don't stop exercising. I, I admit it was a little surprising that, that you didn't find more because so quickly, this was, this was uh, I can't remember if you presented this or this was in Dr. Chung's book, but talked about the effect of dose, that there, there's several things that impact how much pollution you're exposed to. One is the concentration in the air. Second is how long you are exposed to the, the pollution. But the third is ventilation. Obviously, if we're on a bike or running and going really hard, we're breathing heavier which is increasing the amount that we're breathing in. It's, it's getting deeper into our lungs. And there's also that effect that uh, as we start going hard, we move from nasal breathing to oral breathing, and the, uh, the nasal passages have a filtering effect that you don't get when you, you breathe through your mouth. So I would have thought, hearing all that, that exercise would, would have a, a big impact on our exposure to pollution and the damages. Yeah, and you're right about all those factors and and your metabolic rate is higher during exercise yeah, by definition so all those things are theoretical reasons why exercise should well it it will increase the dose of air pollution uh, over the short term but why we would expect to see pr more pronounced negative effects of air pollution but in in our studies and in studies that are colleagues do at other sites in Europe and in Brazil, we can't see that consistent effect. I think, I think one of the things that we really need to think about is we're exercising only a portion of our day, whereas we're exposed to air pollution 24 hours a day. The negative effects of air pollution are incontrovertible. What we really, the message we really like to get across is, you know, that one hour of exercise during air pollution we're not seeing additive effects from the exercise, but still avoid the air pollution. And then during rest, minimize your exposure. So when we're working with athletes, there was a world track and field championships a year and a half ago in, 
in Qatar and in, uh, in Doha, and they had really high pollution levels, especially around late late at night, around midnight, and that's when they hold the marathon. The marathon start with something like 11:30 p.m. because of the temperature, uh, and so the athletes were going to be running the marathon in the highest or very high pollution time of day, and there there were concerns around that, and so one of the strategies that we we're recommending for them is you know, you, we'll get to masks later probably, but tr do everything you can to avoid air pollution for the rest of the day. Have them uh, inside in climate-controlled area with high-quality, you know, filtering. If they're outside on their way to their event, maybe they should be actually wearing a mask to reduce that uh, pollution exposure. Uh, just because, you know, we spend, even elite athletes are spending more time at rest than during exercise in their day. And we can really minimize the air pollution effect at rest uh, so that, you know, they're uh, minimizing their total dose, even though they may still be exercising in air pollution. Dr. Stephen Chung, cyclist and researcher at Brock University, is well-versed in the science of environmental effects on training. We just talked about factors that affect our exposure, such as concentration and time of day. Dr. Chung takes it a step further and talks about how heat and cold can add to the effect that pollution has on our bodies. They kind of affect you in different ways. And let's talk about heat first of all. And especially we're coming up to Tokyo, we're coming up to other major games in the summertime in polluted cities to begin with. And in the summertime with the heat, it exacerbates pollution by increasing the level of overall smog. So that's why you always hear about smog alerts and they're usually coincide with days that are hot. The reason why that is, is that ozone levels are greatly increased during the heat because they are a combination of the pollutants that are already in the air, like uh, nitrogen oxides, like the volatile organic compounds, when they are mixed in with the addition of heat and sunlight, that's what creates ground level ozone. So ground level ozone greatly elevates during those periods of uh, very hot weather in combination with already existing pollution. So that's going to be the big danger that there is just simply greater levels of ozone overall than you would on a same day where it's maybe not that sunny and also not that hot. So that's the big danger. That's certainly what we saw in Beijing in 2008 Olympics, where again, it was held in a very, very polluted city. On top of that, there was also very hot and humid weather mixing in with everything. So we can talk about more about how to kind of counteract that in a little bit, but let's get to the second part of the question, which was how does cold weather affect pollutant levels in your exposure and response to pollution? And the way that happens is not necessarily with the greater amount of, of pollutants, such as creating more ozone. What happens is if you're in the cold, often many of us already have some kind of exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. Our airways are a bit more irritated and because of the dry air that we are breathing in. And when we mix into that, the impact of pollutants, such as uh, particulate matter, which also irritates our airways. So you kind of have two things that are irritating your airways instead of 
just the code itself. So it can cause any pre-existing tendencies that have exercise-induced bronchoconstriction and irritation of the airways become even more so when we are in the cold. So those are the two kind of opposite challenges. Uh, in the heat, there's more overall pollutants, especially ozone. And in the cold, there is the greater risk for the pollutants affecting us in terms of bronchoconstriction. Very good. You, you mentioned earlier, there are some things you can do to combat the, the effects of heat amplification of pollutants effect on you. You want to dive into that a little bit? Sure. One of the things you can do is um, really time your exercise differently to be in the cooler parts of the day. Uh, maybe before rush hour, you know, even if it means getting up earlier before there's a lot of pollutants that are built up in the atmosphere because of whether it's industry, whether it's traffic, and also because of the warmer temperatures during the middle part of the day. So you can reduce your exposure that way. Um, and then again, on the high alert days, uh, smog alert, you don't necessarily want to be exercising outdoors. Just like if you're in California and there are the wildfires, you don't want to be, be exercising when it's a lot of wood smoke kind of coming through your part of, part of uh, area. And so you want to minimize exposure. That's obviously number one. You don't necessarily want to be doing the really high intensity efforts because in those very high pollution days, if you do a lot of hard, hard efforts, you're also going to be breathing in deeper than you would if you were doing a light exercise. And so you're breathing in more volume, but you're also breathing in deeper. So any pollutants for the same level of pollutants, they may be getting deeper into your airways and actually in, into your alveoli. So, so yeah, those are the ways to kind of, very broad strokes without kind of doing any technology or anything is one is to again to reduce your exposure by altering your time of exercise and the other is maybe modifying your exercise so that you're not doing the really intense efforts the other things you can do is to um, you know if necessarily exercise indoors if possible and uh, obviously assuming you have a decent filtration system in your indoor space otherwise you're just going to be breathing in outside air that but just indoors so that's something else that you can be doing and um and then there's there's still some hesitation about antioxidants uh, whether they help or not there's some studies that do show that taking in more antioxidants can have a long-term benefit in terms of reducing your impact from pollution. There's some other studies that, that don't show it. So it's somewhat equivocal, uh, but it's probably not really an acute benefit. It's more kind of a long-term benefit if that's the case. Hey listeners. If you've been listening to Fast Talk for a while, you've probably heard a few of my hot weather racing stories, like the time I tricked a rival team into feeding me some of their water bottles, or a few of the times where I didn't do quite so well. Stories like those show how critical it is to beat the heat and stay hydrated. In our new pathway, we explore exercise in the heat. 
We show how to manage heat, dial in hydration, and fuel for performance in hot conditions. This new pathway taps Dr. Stephen Chung, the internationally recognized expert in thermal physiology, and sports scientist Robert Pickles, Lindsay Golich, Dr. Steven Seiler, plus, of course, Ryan Kohler and myself. This pathway busts myths and reveals science-based best practices for beating the heat. Topics include rider body types, mental strategies, sports strength salinity, drinking versus dosing, muscle cramping, where you know I have a strong bias, getting acclimated, drink the thirst, and how heat affects sports nutrition. Take a look at our new exercise in the heat pathway at fasttalklabs.com. One thing that I don't think we've really differentiated here are the the pollutants that exist in the outdoor world versus those that might be specific to indoor settings. Certainly some, uh, like, you know, last summer, for example, I don't think any home in Boulder uh, was immune to the smell of smoke entering into the house, right? So you can assume that some of that pollution that was in the air was also inside your house. But I, I must believe that there are some types of pollution that that primarily exist inside. Is that true? And and is that a different discussion altogether? For example, Zwifting is a big thing now. Should people be concerned about the air pollution inside their house? Yeah, you're right. There's sort of almost two kinds of air pollution. During wildfire season, for sure, the, you get a lot of the par- particle and you can just smell it inside your house. You know, I'm I'm guilty when we're really bad at in terms of uh, wildfire. I would do more zwifting and less riding outside, trying to trick myself into thinking uh, that it's it's better for me. I think the pollution levels typically will be lower, especially if you have some sort of climate control and you have um, uh, filtration as part of that. But the other point that you're bringing up, Chris, is there's also unique indoor air pollutants too. So, uh, you know, things like candles uh, uh, and incense and solvents that are used uh, for cleaning or to glue down carpets or, you know, we have a gas stove here. So we have internal combustion in the house uh, creating particulates, but also even a little bit of carbon monoxide. And it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a bit of a unknown in that uh, there isn't a body of research looking at the air pollution and indoor exercise equation. You know, you go into a brand new gym, they've just painted, they've laid down some new carpet or that rubbery stuff. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, volatile organic compounds that are uh, affecting us uh, as well. So it, it's, it, it's a conversation that we need to get into. But from a research point of view, we really haven't looked at the exercise side of that. And we need to. Now, we've talked about the what, what affects um, exposure and that effective dose. One thing that comes to mind is the fact that cyclists, they're riding often four or five hours. Um, what does the data say about uh, that type of exposure versus, you know, something that's a, a bit shorter in, in duration? Yeah, Chris, I think it's really important, especially for your listeners, because that is something that's some somewhat, uh, I won't say unique, but characteristic of cyclists in, in that these uh, long uh, aerobic rides are a big 
important part of the training. And uh, when we look at all the acute uh, studies, I only know of one that's longer than an hour in duration. Most of them are shorter than that, or if even if they are an hour, they're, they're quite low intensity. And so that's an area that we need to look at is this sort of uh, long, slow ride in that four or five hours, you're going to have a much higher uh, pollution dose over that long period of time. And I think that would be a sort of a, a caution message is actually we actually recommend that specifically on high pollution days. So say it's wildfire season in Boulder. If you have to ride, it actually makes sense to do some intense, shorter intensity work and not uh, your long, slow distance. And we actually studied that. We had uh, uh, cyclists uh, training in high pollution conditions at low at rest, low intensity and high intensity. And we were expecting for all the reasons Trevor mentioned earlier that the high intensity would compound the effect. You're breathing more high intensity or more through your mouth, all those things you'd have more of an effect. And the only difference we saw between low and high intensity, uh, this was in cycling, cycling exercise was that the VO2, the oxygen consumption in air pollution and diesel exhaust in this case was slightly higher in diesel exhaust versus clean air during the low intensity exercise. And it was no different during the high intensity exercise. And so that's the opposite of what we were expecting. We wanted to see, you know, more negative effects, more um, metabolic costs during high intensity exercise, because that would make sense. And we actually saw the opposite. And we looked at a lot of different factors in terms of blood vessel function, heart function, lung function, and we didn't see a worsening effect in terms of the high intensity exercise. And so if, you know, my, my coach has given me a long four hour easy ride to do today, but it's a high pollution day and tomorrow I've got some, you know, sweet spot intervals, but it's a much shorter ride. If you have to do that ride, you, you choose the best location and time of day, but I would recommend that sort of shorter, higher intensity sweet spot ride over that long, uh, long, slow ride. You put that off until the wind picks up or you have some rain or something to clear out the, the pollution. Yeah, that really surprised me in your research that I would have thought high intensity for all the reasons we were talking about would uh, really impact um, your, your exposure to the pollution and the effect it has on you. I was quite surprised when you said, no, it seems uh, low intensity and, and longer is, is uh, the pollution has a bigger effect on you. Actionable things would be, you know, Zwift indoors is probably better than outdoors. But, you know, I mean, it's it's hard to do those five-hour rides on Zwift, but it's easy to do something structured or something like that. Uh, and so those would be sort of actionable strategies for your listeners on really high pollution days is to have more of those short structured workouts, maybe more indoors, and then we'll leave the longer aerobic rides a little bit later until things clear up. Before we talk a little more about how much this impacts performance, I do want to take a little deeper dive into just the general health impacts of pollution. And it seems like most of it is in the cardiovascular system. You, you see rises in blood pressure, you see changes in endothelial function, and it also appears that it is, it seems that it's, it's causing a lot of this through inflammation. I would also add to that lung, uh, lung function. So 
especially where there are studies that kids that are exposed to either type of uh, pollution, sort of particulates from indoor ice hockey or uh, ozone, their, their prevalence of asthma over time will increase. That's sort of one of the, the long-term things to think about. And especially, you know, everything we've been talking about is really for healthy individuals, right? A lot of uh, endurance athletes and a lot of top endurance athletes have some component of asthma or exercise-induced bronchoconstriction uh, as well. And that, that does change things uh, a little bit as well. I was mentioning earlier how the ozone effects seem to be a little bit more clear than the other sources of air pollution. And that's particularly true in terms of people with asthma or exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, which is sort of the asthma triggered by exercise in that they do seem to get a bit of impairment in lung function in response to that ozone. And that can lead to performance effects from that. And it also seems these bronchodilators could could actually, in a high pollution environment, they can potentially hurt. Is that the case? Yeah. So so it's sort of like what you were talking about earlier with the exercise. How a bronchodilator, and that's a typical bronchodilator, is Ventolin or albuterol is the the American chemical name for it. We call it salbutamol up here. It what it does is it relaxes the muscles around the airways, which will open the airways, make the diameter of the airways greater. And so that you'd think, well, that would mean that the pollution gets deeper into the lung and increases the air pollution dose, right? So theoretically, you'd think maybe these are problematic. And so, uh, and there was some animal research that indicated that that might be the case. So we specifically studied that. We got a bunch of people with exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, so asthmatics, who get airway issues during exercise. We exposed them to really high levels of air pollution or filtered air, and it was blinded. And that their asthma medication, their bronchodilators, or placebo, and there was no worsening effect at all, and that the, the bronchodilators did what they were supposed to do in terms of opening up the airways of the asthmatics, uh, but so no negative effects. And so our sort of take-home message uh, for people with asthma and exercise-induced bronchoconstriction is get good control of your asthma in conjunction with your physician, with your, if it, it requiring medications, and uh, typically it may be one or two medications. And if it's a high pollution situation, uh, don't change that, uh, meaning, you know, don't forego your medications thinking that you may increase your dose. Uh, it, in fact, it's the opposite. Follow your physician's guidelines and take your asthma medications, and they will be uh, they will do their job. I, I would like to give you a hypothetical, Dr. Cole. Here, um, it was a particularly bad year for wildfires um, across the United States last year, and in a lot of places, honestly, around the world. And I feel like those conditions may be more uh, likely to happen in the future because of uh, lots of factors, including climate change. For people that are training and they're serious about their sport, whether they're professional or elite amateurs, they might go out and they're doing their best to avoid heavy uh, times of pollution, but they're still going to get in their rides. They're kind of, they've got that attitude like exercise good, pollution bad, but exercise much better for me. I'm going to do it anyways. I need this. Um, and they 
they might go out and it's pretty bad air quality. Maybe there's a wildfire not far from them and they're going to get it in. Uh, and they don't necessarily feel terrible that day or the next day or the next day. But I'm curious if the the research helps explain or if you can just give recommendations or or, or maybe not recommendations, but what are the potential permanent effects, uh, negative effects that somebody could encounter if they do this and somewhat disregard the recommendations to avoid heavy days of air pollution? The evidence I think about is that just by living in a city, uh, you increase your risk of lung disease and even lung cancer. And that's, that's an air pollution thing. And we also know that exposure to air pollution leads to cardiovascular disease, admissions to hospital for things like heart attacks. And so air pollution exposure over time will increase your risk of all of these things. I think in the last 10 years, we've seen an increase in the number of these wild, wildfire situations. And there will be knock-on effects in terms of both lung and heart disease. But I, I think it's really important that it's... it's the 24-hour exposure to that air pollution that's causing that, and that during that brief period of exercise in that day, it's not clear that we're making it worse, and it's 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 the epidemiological data show that it's it's not worth being sedentary. So, uh, in both where you live and we live, the wildfire seasons are only a matter of typically a couple of weeks, and. You know, I think it does make good common sense uh, if you can reduce the volume of your training over that period and focus on some other things. Maybe take that as a break to, to focus a little bit more on, you know, your form and your core and get a little bit of uh, time away from the bike so that you're rejuvenated and excited to get back on it. I think it's totally reasonable to back off a little bit during those periods. We're fortunate that they only last uh, a couple weeks at a time. I think that's a pragmatic approach. I'm basically speaking from personal experience. I think Trevor was in the same boat. Uh, a lot of people in this area take take uh, cycling or or running or their sport of choice as a lifestyle. You know, it's a lifestyle thing. They they have a hard time giving it up, honestly. Um, and we dealt with it. Unfortunately, last last year for particularly us, it bad. Was, it was particularly bad, and it was it was it seemed like it went on for months. Honestly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we dealt with it for a while and we probably, some of us at least, cut back. But I think at, eventually we all sort of said, eh, I'm still going to go out for some long rides. So I just want to know, <laughs> I guess I'm asking, what damage have I done to myself, honestly? Um, but a lot of people out there are in the same boat. Whether you rode your bike or not uh, last summer, you increase your risk of uh, lung and heart disease. Uh, and what we don't know is whether you riding and sort of still doing some long rides did anything beyond, beyond what just being in this climate during that time uh, already did. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If we sort of generalize it a little bit and say, okay, well, maybe it's not the, if we look at living in the city, a polluted city, which is nowhere near as bad as wildfire season in Colorado was, uh, we know that the people that exercise, they get strong, significant benefits to their health that far outweigh the air pollution. And so there's, 
we can, we're sort of trying to interpolate between knowing that, knowing that we don't see these acute effects uh, during that intense uh, air pollution situation, and that the air pollution is bad. And you know what? I'm as biased as, as both of you are. And in wildfire season, I'm still on my bike out in the, in the smoke as well. I really think it's that 24-hour exposure to air pollution that's harming us. You know, I don't want to uh, jump on that fact too much, but the person that we brought on to this program to speak about the effects of pollution is also getting out there and enjoying himself despite the the uptick in, in some of these pollutants occasionally and doing uh, taking other precautions. That that should, should send a, a bit of a signal that it's, you know, exercise is um does outweigh the effects especially if you're taking the taking the precautions you can you make me think of you make me think of the smoker you know it's like if i, <laughs> I quit smoking uh it's not worth living anyway and, and i think you know f for a lot of people cycling is like that yeah it it, it yeah. i don't i yeah it's not it's not all that comparable to smoking let's let's hope <laughs> but I hear what you're saying that we get a little obsessed with what we do and, and we love it. And, um, sometimes it put, we put blinders on when it comes to our cycling and getting, getting that ride in. We, we've touched upon some of the performance effects already, but let's take a little clo closer look at that. Uh, Dr. Cole, what's the evidence there? What, what, what are we, you seeing in the research? Yeah, I think I think uh, it's good to uh, divide it up again by pollutant. And so Trevor did a nice job explaining the performance effects of carbon monoxide, and it, it's clear. Fortunately, it's generally these days not a huge pollutant to which we're exposed. Uh, but if if you do know or that you're going to be competing in an area where there's a uh, um, high carbon monoxide, you will get a temporary. Uh, negative effect, but so will all your competitors. Ozone will have a bit of a, a, a negative effect in, in that you'll feel more breathlessness. You may feel more chest tightness, and that's in people with and without uh, exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. It'll be quite moderate, and it you will be able to adapt to it a little bit. So that's kind of the good, the rosier side of that, I guess. In terms of the traffic-related air pollutants, the People that have done it, done it the best are the doctor, his name is Homlo Bertuzzi. He's at the, at the University of Sao Paulo, and they used, they did a 90-minute cycling time trial uh, comparing filtered air to um, that really high-quality Sao Paulo air pollution that we talked about. And uh, they looked at, at a power output, and it was actually a 50-kilometer time trial. And so you could you could tell if it's 50 kilometers and they're doing it in about 90 minutes, they're not the most elite cyclists. But there was absolutely no difference in uh, power output or heart rate or time to completion. In the traffic-related air pollution, there may be a slight difference in how you feel in terms of both uh, breathlessness or that sort of feeling uh, slightly shorter breath, but also in your legs. Uh, we ask in, in all our studies, we ask the the participants to rate their legs and sort of the rating of perceived exertion. And it's a very slight increase in the pollution condition during the filtered air. But it's important that that doesn't correlate to a change in power or heart rate or, or some of these, these other parameters. In the traffic-related air pollution, the performance effects, at least up to about 90 minutes, 
they seem very modest and it's more a sensation thing as opposed to uh, power output or speed or heart rate. Where we do see a bit of a, a performance effect that's interesting is uh, when we expose people to air pollution before uh, exercise. Uh, we did one study where uh, it was again cycling exercise and we found that uh, if we pre-expose them to, this was diesel exhaust, uh, during exercise, their heart rate is a little bit higher and that their their lung function was a little bit compromised in that whenever anybody exercises, uh, their airways open up as a response to the, the adrenaline, the sympathetic influence of exercise, our lungs open up, but that was inhibited a bit by um, pre-exposure to air pollution. So in summary, I guess you have kind of a, your legs feel a little bit crappy, you're noticing you're breathing a bit more, but uh, your numbers are the same in terms of your power. But that pre-exposure, again, it comes to that sort of minimizing your air pollution outside of competition concept. Pre-exposure may have a bit of a performance effect as well. I, I said we'd, we'd come back to this, and I, I want to ask about this. So you, you said, for example, with ozone, you can adapt to it. And uh, you know, I think to the Beijing Olympics, where most of the athletes tried to arrive at the last minute, you, you think of somebody like Cancellero said, no, I'm going to show up two weeks early and try to adjust to the, the pollution in the air and ended up getting the bronze medal in the road race and winning the, the time trial. So you said you can adapt, but the question I want to ask is, is that a good thing? In the long run, are you causing yourself uh, greater health impacts by, by trying to adapt to it? It's an important question to, to ask about the sort of long-term consequences of ozone. We do know that um, repeated exposure may increase the uh, prevalence of asthma in children. And how ozone works is it's uh, pro-oxidant generating these free radicals that cause inf inflammation and, and tissue damage. And so there's probably no lower limit where there's no negative effect of ozone. And so the, the levels that we would recommend in terms of adaptation would be very modest within the, this, the World Health Organization guidelines, which are 100 parts per billion, which is what you would see during rush hour on a bad day in July and August in Tokyo. We're not talking about exposing people to sort of super normal or super high levels of it. But, you know, I think the, the message is always that air pollution uh, is bad for us. But if, you know, it's going into your Olymp Olympics, this is your A competition of your really not your entire year, your entire four years. If you're doing a bit of uh, four days of adaptation to ozone, it's probably worth the trade-off if you're going to get that uh, small fraction of percentage of improved performance on race day. Yeah, I think it's also worth talking about antioxidants in that there have now been a few studies that have looked at antioxidants. One study looked at red orange juice, you know, uh, 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 the oranges with red pulp, but most of them just use vitamin C and vitamin E supplements, something like 500 milligrams of vitamin C and 100 milligrams of vitamin E. And they showed that this amount of supplementation for a couple of weeks prior to competition will reduce the uh, negative effects of ozone because that ozone is, is a, a pro-oxidant causing the creation of free radicals. And these vitamin uh, C and E act to some somewhat sort of 
diminish those effects or to soak up those free radicals. So that's a pretty easy, safe strategy to employ. Um, uh, 500 milligrams of vitamin C and 100 milligrams of, of vitamin E daily for the two weeks leading up to competition. Just because a lot of people have the more is better type attitude, um, if you're taking antioxidants, be really careful about vitamin E. So the recommendation you just gave, don't go above that. Don't start thinking that, that more is better. There's been a lot of research showing that vitamin E, if you take too much, it can actually have really negative health impacts on you. And part of the reason is vitamin E is a, a lipid-soluble um, vitamin. So once it's in your system, your body has no way to excrete it. And if you have too much in your system, it can do damage. So, so don't overdose on it, please. What are other recommendations? I know we've been talking about these all the way through, so maybe this is just a summary. But what other recommendations would you give our listeners both for training and for performance uh, when they're, they're in a place that, that has high pollution levels? Before getting into the summary, I think I'll, I'll just touch on masks because that's that's something that people often want to ask about. It does make sense that a, a mask can reduce your pollution dose, especially on the particle side. There's been very few studies looking at exercise and masks and air pollution. And really, the only there's only one somewhat relevant series of studies. And I say only somewhat relevant because it was walking and it was two hours of walking, which is nothing like the intensity or duration that your your listeners would do. And it involved wearing masks for 48 hours. So 24 hours the day before, and then 24 hours during the day of exercise. And there were some modest benefits uh, from a cardiovascular point of view. And so it, it's, it's not enough evidence to generalize to say people should be wearing masks when they exercise. And the French Ministry of Health did a really a nice white paper where they really looked at all the research around masks and exercise, and they they did conclude that there wasn't clear benefit for it. And and the mask that um, they did do this study on was a it's it's a, like one of those N95 masks where you have a complete seal. It's, it was made by 3M. So I think it was the 8812 mask, but it looks like your standard N95. It's it's going to uh, make it quite difficult for you to, during high-intensity efforts, get enough air in and out. And so based on the research, our recommendations are in high-pollution situations, especially leading up to competition, if you want to wear a mask outside of training and competition, do it just to lower your overall pollution dose during that day. There's not enough evidence to recommend it during training, and uh, certainly during competition, it would be uh, it would uh, affect your oxygen delivery and also your ability to uh, uh, get rid of carbon dioxide. So that sort of we need to do a lot more work on masks, but that's sort of the recommendation that we're giving around that. In terms of other uh, general recommendations, I'll sort of repeat. You know, air pollution's bad, so separate yourself by distance and by time and there's lots of variations within the in the day in terms of weather and stuff and so really try to take advantage of that uh, when it's really bad it's probably a little bit better inside uh, probably choose shorter duration and maybe higher intensity over long uh, long duration uh, exposures if you have asthma or exercise induced bronchoconstriction 
make sure that it's well stabilized uh, in, con in uh, consultation with your physician. Take your medications. Don't be worried about taking them uh, during high pollution days. They will be doing their job. And if you're being exposed to a high ozone environment, uh, consider uh, the vitamin C and vitamin E. That was 500 milligrams of vitamin C and only 100 of vitamin E uh, in the lead up to that. And I think uh, the last last point is when we're building a good training program uh, for cyclists, we want to take into account training stress, but also non-training stress. And just like altitude, high pollution should be considered a non-training stress, and you want to take that into into account. You may find that your recovery is not quite what it uh, uh, what it what you're expecting, and so you may need a little bit more recovery uh, during high pollution conditions, or maybe you need to back off in terms of the intensity and duration. Well, Dr. Cole, we um, we like to close out every episode with some take homes. You just did a great job of of recapping all of the recommendations, but we'll start with you. What would be your overall take home message for this particular topic in this episode? Yeah, I think the the real take home message is there's no doubt that air pollution is bad for us, but we need to reduce our exposure to it 24 hours a day. Uh, and there's no doubt that exercise is extremely important for our mental and physical health with a couple of exceptions around carbon monoxide and ozone it's it's really not uh, clear that uh, the exercise is exacerbating the negative effects of air pollution and so as as a result of that i personally try to minimize my air pollution exposure uh, and i but i still will exercise in high pollution conditions but i uh, i choose where i ride i choose when i ride uh, in order to really minimize that. Trevor, what would you say? Well, I think you you just absolutely nailed the, uh, the most important takeaway from here. I would say the second one for me is understanding that there are these different mixes of pollution, uh, like you called it. It's a recipe. Every place has its own recipe. And it's probably worth knowing a little bit of what sort of pollution are you dealing with in the region that you're in. So we just talked about here in Colorado, we, we've had to deal a lot with forest fires. And that's one particular type of pollution. When I lived in Toronto and was riding very close to cars, it's, it's another type. And depending on the type of pollutions you are dealing with, that might lead to different responses, different actions that you can take. Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm not sure what else to, to add. Both of those are, are really great points. Um, you have to know what you're being exposed to, where you live, and then you can plan accordingly to, to limit your your dose uh, based on the time of day where certain certain pollutants might rise where you live or, or might subside where you live. Um, so I think those are both perfect ways to end the, this episode. Thank, thank you so much, Dr. Cole. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you both. It's, it's been uh, it's a pleasure to, for me to be on the show too. Well, we've loved having you, so thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback, so join us and join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become part of our education and coaching community. 
for Dr. Michael Cole, Dr. Stephen Chung, Shana Paulus, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>